Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, April 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, access to affordable child care gets a funding boost through the American Rescue Plan. Then, from the Gulf States newsroom, the history of community health centers and the role they're playing in the Delta during the pandemic. Plus, in the fifth installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we examine who votes in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Access to affordable child care in Mississippi is getting a major funding boost through the American Rescue Plan. $519 million is on the way to expand affordable child care due to the coronavirus pandemic. It's relief some working closely with low-income families are celebrating. Carol Burnett with the Mississippi Low-Income Child Care Initiative calls the federal funding historic for the state. She says there are 112,000 children eligible for child care assistance in Mississippi, but there hasn't been enough funding to reach all of them. She tells our Desiree Frazier the pandemic has highlighted the need for expanded child care assistance. It has become so clear during the pandemic that families rely on child care in order for parents to go to work. And that is especially true in families where there's a single mom who needs to work and she has young children. And child care is an essential support for the workforce. Um, and many of the low-income moms who are in Mississippi Child Care Assistance Program are themselves essential workers. So they have had to continue to work. And these funds that are coming to Mississippi are so historic in the sense that they are offering a huge amount of additional funding and that money is coming in the child care assistance program that 519 million that you mentioned is really in two buckets one of the buckets is about 200 million that is specifically for expanding the number of eligible children served 
And the reason that is so important in Mississippi is because right now, DHS says they're serving about 31,000 kids, and we estimate about 112,000 qualify. And this money is going to help increase that number by another 35,000 children. So reaching more children, serving more families is going to make this child care assistance that is such a big financial help for families benefit significantly more eligible families. Will it meet the demand in the state? Uh, well, you know, uh, not quite. <laughs> but it's uh, more than double what we already are doing. And that is a tremendous advancement. We just haven't seen an increase in funding in this program at this level in the 23 years I've been working uh, on this issue. So that's why I say it's historic because it, the, in, the um, infusion of revenue is unprecedented. And that $200 million I was talking about for serving children is only part of the $519 million. The other part, states are told that they should stabilize their child care systems. So all these child care centers that have been struggling so hard to keep their heads above water through coronavirus, they've had to have smaller class sizes, which means they've had to have more staff. They've had to have more sanitizing supplies and PPE. Um, they have had to close when there's been an exposure to coronavirus and have quarantining. They've had to um, adapt in significant ways, which frequently has meant a, a drop in enrollment, which has meant a drop in revenue. So they have had a real difficult time through coronavirus. And this money is intended to shore up that system that working families rely on so heavily. And your interaction with families, with mothers, with child care providers, what are you hearing um, have you been sharing this information with them? But what are you hearing from them about their struggles? Yeah, we do talk with them and we do hear their struggles. And for the most part, from the parents, what we hear either how desperately they need affordable child care or what an incredible difference positive difference it makes for them when they finally are able to get affordable child care through the child care assistance program. So <clears throat> that before and after picture is quite dramatic um, because they need it so much. Those who are applying, trying to get through the application process, trying to obtain the assistance, and then once they have it, what an incredible difference it makes for their ability to work their um, security about the place where they found a um, caring spot for their child, the parent's ability to work. I mean, it just makes all the difference for a single mom to be able to get that child care assistance. Um, and for providers, um, the, the ability to serve the families, I mean, many of these providers know families in their community that want to be in their center, need to be in their center, but can't afford to be in their center. So knowing that 
there's some funds that are going to be available to make it possible for more to enroll in their center is going to be a terrific benefit for the community, for the families, and for the providers themselves. We've been meeting with providers across the state to solicit their input about how these funds should be used, and um, they have encouraged that the funds be used to um, really support the families who need child care, uh, to make the child care centers that have experienced such losses over the pandemic whole again so they can feel stable and continue to provide the service. They're very committed to the families and children they serve, and they just want to be able to continue doing that. Well, that is going to do a lot of good, as you said. Thank you so much, Carol Burnett, for speaking with us about this. Sure. Thanks for thanks for calling. The Child Care Assistance Program is administered by the State Department of Human Services, currently meets a fraction of the need for children care, or for child care providers, rather. That financial assistance has been a way to keep doors open and staff on board during the pandemic. Lily Hoskins operates a learning center in Batesville. She says the aid kept her afloat, but she has lost some clients who are no longer eligible for assistance. Paying for paying, they're copay poets. But then the child care DHS program, they came back and they started paying all of it for the parents, the copay and the the tuition and everything. And that's what really have helped me. And if you didn't have that, what would have happened? I would have had to close because I did lose some that lost their certificate. They were helping the essential workers, which I didn't understand why they stopped because they're still essential workers. You know, they still helping the parents, but they dropped the essential workers. And I lost, uh, I lost, what, 10 of those? Because they say, you know, they, they just couldn't afford it by themselves. The American Rescue Plan that was signed by President Biden, uh, that has funding in it. There's $519 million total coming to Mississippi, and that's going to be available to help child care providers like yourself. What does that mean for helping your business to recover? You said you have gotten some support. Uh, if they, it's going to help me be able to keep my staff, you know. I have a very good staff. I, I have very low turnover. And, you know, everybody needs money. Everything going up. And if I get good funding, I'll be able to pay my people good. That way I won't lose any uh, staff members because that's the hardest thing now to get somebody to work, even sub, you know. So you got to be able to give them some kind of, you know, good paying thing to keep them at work and to even want to work. Lily Hoskins, we really appreciate your time in speaking with us. You are the owner of Hoskins Learning Center in Panola. Thank you for your time. All right. Coming up from the Gulf States Newsroom, the history of community health centers and the role they're playing in the Delta during the pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
As the vaccine rollout opens up to more people, states across the South are still figuring out how to distribute the shots equitably. Mississippi says it's partnering with community health centers, which have historically served many rural and low-income populations. Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom takes us back in time to the first ever rural community health center to see how it's continuing its mission during the pandemic. About a two-hour drive north of Jackson, Mississippi, is a small town tucked away into the heart of the Delta. Walking around Mound Bayou, there's not much to see. Some small convenience stores, old gas stations, and rundown relics of some of the first black-owned businesses in the state. This predominantly black town was founded by formerly enslaved people and settled by farmers like Mitch Williams, who grew up here in the 1930s. We work from sun to sun. If you would cut yourself, they didn't put no, no suitcase in, no stitches in it. You wrapped it up and kept going. Healthcare was practically non-existent, or the few options the community had were segregated. That is, until the Delta Health Center arrived in 1965. Williams was one of the first patients. They were seeing uh, patients in the local churches. They had mobile units. I had never seen that kind of uh, comprehensive care. The Delta Health Center is the first rural community health center in the nation. It's now one of about 1,400 across the country that receives federal funding to care for patients regardless of their ability to pay. These types of facilities serve about 30 million people. In the 60s, Mound Bayou residents lacked basic necessities, like clean drinking water. That's why civil rights worker and doctor Jack Geiger from New York traveled to the Mississippi Delta to test out the community health center model. 14,000 black people with a median annual family income of $900 a year with an infant mortality rate of something like 70 per thousand. That's Geiger speaking in a 1970s documentary called Out in the Rural. He says the mission of the center is to address the social factors that affect health. And so sure, we have the physician, nurse, lab, but much more than that. We take health care into the home, Mitch Williams, who eventually worked for the center, says the facility helped people insulate their homes, built outhouses, and provided food. He says if it weren't here today, he's not sure what would have happened to the local community. It's it's frightening to think of it. Half a century later, rural black Southerners are still confronting those same barriers to health during the COVID-19 pandemic. In April last year, black residents accounted for nearly half of all deaths in Alabama and over 70 percent of deaths in Louisiana and Mississippi. We have a lot of chronic health conditions here, particularly concentrated in the Mississippi Delta, that lead to higher rates of complications and death with COVID, and and it's been tough. In Mound Bayou, like many small towns in the Delta, health care options are still lacking. Many hospitals have had to close over the years. Delta Health Center runs 17 sites in five Mississippi counties and has managed to vaccinate over 4,000 people. The majority have been black. We don't have the National Guard, you know, lining up out here running our site. It's the people who work here. Bethley says the center has seen success with vaccinations because of its history of trust. The Mississippi Health Department has been trying to tap into that. They asked for more partnerships with health centers in early April. But for much of the vaccine rollout, there haven't been as many options to get a vaccine in these rural parts of the state. Well, it's an example of 
of systemic racism that continues. It doesn't surprise people like me. That's Dr. Robert Smith. He's a civil rights leader who is credited as the father of the community health center movement. Mississippi was third world and so separated. The community health center movement was the conduit of physicians all over this country who believe that all people all have a right to health care. Smith says that equal access to care in rural communities is just as critical during this global health crisis as it was in the 60s. When health care improved for blacks, it will improve for all Americans. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chalani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a regional collaboration between public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Coming up in the fifth installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we examine who votes in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Magnolia State voters shattered turnout records during the 2020 election last November. In-person voting rose over 2016, and more Mississippians voted absentee than ever before. Still, despite markedly high participation, only 60 percent of eligible voters cast a ballot last fall, ranking Mississippi 46th out of 50. During the Your Vote, Your Voice series, we've examined a number of voting-related issues from absentee ballots to disenfranchisement. In our fifth installment, we discuss who can and does vote in Mississippi with Dr. Marvin King, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Mississippi. The 26th Amendment, 1971, said anyone 18 and over can vote. Uh, So you've got to be a citizen. And really that's it the the only complication is if you have a, a pre-existing felony and in mississippi there's a list of 22 different felonies that disqualify you from the vote even if you've served your time in prison yes in 37 states uh, once you have served a, a predefined uh, parole or probation then you can get your right to vote but mississippi is not one of those states so you have to go to the governor or have the state legislature essentially write a bill just for you which isn't likely to happen. Very unlikely. Mississippi is 45th out of 50 states in terms of those who turn out to vote. Why? Well, you know, to be honest, it's a, it's a legacy. Um, political scientists will tell you that whenever there are obstacles to vote, you know, each additional step is probably going to reduce turnout. And naturally, uh, throughout Mississippi's history, we've, we've just had more of those obstacles. So there's this long legacy of it. You know, one example might be early voting. Many other states have early voting. We do not. And so as a result, um, it's harder to get more opportunities to vote, you know, during an, any given election season. And so as a, as a result, you have some people who, who work nine to five jobs on Tuesday. They don't get time off to work. And if they have to choose between their wages and voting, many are going to choose their wages and so voting is going to be lower. And many other states offer voting by mail you know, well before the pandemic. And so there's just more opportunities 
to access the ballot, which we don't have here in Mississippi. The black vote in Mississippi is much lower than the white vote. Is that because of the past, an ugly past of those who voted many years ago? Well, interestingly, uh, in some elections, the Mississippi black turnout is as high as white votes. But you're right. In in general, I, I think that's a good assumption that, you know, often it, it's not the case. And partly it's because some of the registration numbers may not be there. And this gets back to some of those earlier legacies that we that we talked about. Um, you know, this is where that access matters. You know, how many voting locations are in each county? Where are they located? Um, when you've got the presence of long lines that can dissuade people from voting, and so you have to look at everything in in the totality, and that's going to make the difference. Do non-voters fall into particular categories: age, race, where they live, political persuasion, apathy? So with non non-voters, um, your less frequent voters, typically they tend to be younger. And this is where education really makes a difference. The more education someone has, they're far more likely to vote and the older they are. And so as a result, the, the electorate skews towards older people and to people with more education. And that's across the country. But in Mississippi, we have a lot of folks with less education. And so that's one of the reasons why we, we, we tend to rank very low on the total number of voters who come out to vote. Do we also have less people interested in registering our citizens to vote compared to other states? Well, you know, I, I would say that's part of that's part of the whole process, your whole voting apparatus. Um, you know, the ability to, you know, for voter groups to go out and register to vote. So what happens is the laws constantly change. And so whenever there's uncertainty about, you know, the process of voting and you know, the registration dates or any of the qualifications or what you need to vote, anytime you introduce uncertainty, that's going to reduce turnout. And that's also going to reduce the ability of some of these nonprofit groups to get involved because in some states now they're facing, you know, pending uh, criminal allegations if they uh, break the law. And so you have some groups that like uh, they don't want to take the risk of doing anything wrong because then they might, you know, face legal consequences. I want to talk about absentee voting. You mentioned not having early voting in the state. During this last general, last general election, the presidential election, uh, Mississippi saw one out of six people voting absentee, which is uh, a much larger number than we've seen in the past. Has absentee voting taken over early voting in some regards? Well, you know, in this case, because of the pandemic, it certainly did. But, you know, I think from the pandemic, there's lots of lessons we can learn that I, I think the lesson there is that Mississippians are really starved for additional ways to vote beyond election day. And so that, to me, was really the lesson there. And there are a lot of hoops to jump through when you want to vote absentee in Mississippi. Correct. In, in many other states, they have what's known as no uh, excuse absentee voting. You, you just request the ballot and they send you. But here you've got to provide a, an excuse as to why you need one. And, you know, some people say, well, it's not the government's business as to well, you just send me my ballot. Uh, but here in Mississippi, you know, you, you've got to do more to get that ballot. So, again, anytime you have to do more, it's going to reduce the number of people who, who bothered it. Which do involves it. notarizing your ballot as well. Um, yes, or, or doing it at the actual courthouse so that it's witnessed. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily absentee when you go to the courthouse right. to vote. That's right. <laughs> What does Mississippi have to learn 
compared to what other states are doing and did during this last presidential election, which was such a chaotic time in our history. Well, I, I think the lesson is you have to invest in your voting infrastructure uh, all the time, right? You have to vo- uh, invest in voter education so that people understand the process and know where to go, go to vote, especially if polling locations have closed or relocated. And, um, you know, we want to make our ballots secure. You want to make everything secure, right? It, it, uh, but it requires investment. And, and democracy is central to the American experience. And really, the amount we, we spend on it is really low compared to how important the process is. Dr. Marvin King is an associate professor of political science at the University of Mississippi. I thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.